Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. This sermon is part of a series called Trumpets and Seals, where we are preaching on Revelation chapters 4 through 11. One of the convictions that has led me to do this series at our church is that the book of Revelation is often a book that people are interested in, but fail to be impacted by. My hope is that this series will change that, at least for some people. With that in mind, I want to invite you to visit the webpage that corresponds with this series. It is wilsonville.church trumpets. On that page, you can watch the sermon videos, but more importantly, there is a respond button that makes it easy for you to reach out to us about the series. If a sermon in this series is impactful to you, I'd love you to reach out. Or maybe you have questions about one of the passages we preach on. Don't hesitate to click on that link and send your question to us. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, even for me, but I'll try my best to answer you. There's one more reason that I want you to visit wilsonville.church trumpets. I'm hoping to put a resource there that offers more insight into the details of the book of Revelation. Like I said, my focus in this series is to show people how God can impact their lives through the book, but I know there's a lot of stuff that interests people, and I want to provide something around that. That resource will be on wilsonville.church trumpets, so make sure to visit the site. Who knows? It might already be up when you hear this. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope it will be impactful. In fact, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Uh, I brought this, and it is not really related uh, to the instrument that was used, because if you, if you see the series title, it's not up there. It's seals and trumpets. This is a horn. Uh, but my parents got this in Israel. They got it for my son. It's a shofar. This is what uh, Hebrews would use. Uh, in the Old Testament, when they would announce uh, things that were coming, often judgment, that maybe an army was being led against another. Uh, my dog did not see this as an instrument that uh, was speaking of judgment, uh, though she did have her own judgment on this end. So this is a ram's horn, and to her, that's a treat. So it didn't last very long in our household, though my son was the only one who was actually able to use it when it was usable. But uh, Chad, when he was thinking about a sermon series, uh, he thought, man, the perfect sermon that will take place before Thanksgiving will be one on judgment. (laughs) So I am going to talk today about judgment. But uh, I want to lead with uh, something that happened to me when I was a child. I grew up with a younger brother, his name's Nathan, and an older sister, her name is Crystal. And we were not always bundles of joy. Sometimes we were loud and obnoxious, and uh, we would get into trouble. But my mother had the solution. She would do this thing as she was in the kitchen and we were being loud and people were pulling hair and screaming. She would open the drawer, we'd perk up, and then we'd look over and she'd just be holding a wood spoon. And we knew, we knew that meant be quiet. 
lest judgment come. But I remember very distinctly, my mom, this was her habit, open the drawer, wood spoon, and she'd just stare. But one day, we were getting in lots of trouble, and we hear the drawer open, and we look over, and my mom is staring at us, and in her hand is not a wood spoon. It is a meat tenderizer. <laughs> it's got spikes on one end, a flat end, it's a... It's a mallet. Now, I look back now, and I have to assume it was by accident that she reached and grabbed us, but her face gave no indication. And it got to the point where my mom didn't have to do anything other than open the drawer and close it. And we would be, right? We didn't see it. We didn't know what she was reaching for. It could have been the meat tenderizer. We didn't even know. But we knew that if we are not getting things in order right away, judgment is coming. Uh, and that is going to speak a lot into what we go over today. And I want to read uh, for you the trumpets. Now, if, if you remember from last week, uh, where Chad was talking about the seals, the seventh seal opens up to these trumpets of judgment. Now, there are a few different views on precisely what these trumpets are, but what's very pervasive here in the United States in terms of the most popular belief is that this is the tribulation, and each trumpet is a year, so it's the seven years of tribulation. But let me read, let me read for you uh, this. It's uh, chapter 8, verse 6 through 13. I'm going to put this down, though. And I move a lot, so i got to put it away, or I'll trip, and that will be something for a video later. Starting at verse 6. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpets, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded. 
by the other three angels. So the sermon series thus far uh, has looked at the kernel of truth or the locus of truth that sort of permeates all of the views. And I don't want to uh, stray from this. I was telling Levi, I actually do want to stray from this and be like, well, here's what I think. But uh, I also uh, don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of the futurist view or the or, or premillennialist or amillennialist or postmillennialist. These are big words, and they're complicated words, and they're fun to talk about in a theology class. But frankly, for us, what does it mean to us? And I want to reflect really quickly on 2 Timothy 3.16 through 17, where it says, all Scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos is the word there, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we know that revelation is Scripture. And therefore, we understand that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the real question here is, in what way are these trumpets meaningful to us in a way that teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness? And I told you that the, the prevalent belief in, uh, uh, regarding these trumpets is that it is the seven years of tribulation. And you have a, a large group who says, look, you can kind of sit back and rest easy because you're going to be raptured before this. You're going to be taken into heaven while everyone else so, sort of suffers through this tribulation. You have the tribulation, which is the first four trumpets, and then the great tribulation, which is the next three. And this view uh, comes from uh, the idea of rapture in 1 Corinthians and in Thessalonians, but then you have another group who says, no, 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 Christians are going to have to endure this. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 51 and 52, it says this, and we can read that. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. So there is a group that says, no, 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 it's not to the last trumpet that everyone gets raised up. There are groups that say, no, each trumpet is a, a moment in history. Maybe it's the attack of the Huns on Rome there in the fifth century. Maybe it's all captured in the first century during the Jewish revolt. There are those who say all of this is future judgment on people. And I can tell you confidently that this is not something we will know for certain until Jesus returns. But I do need you to know that the mystery of it is powerful and profound in its own right. And what does that teach us. And it's actually the first point I want to make. And it's the meaning that we find in mystery. And uh, 
I want to give you three. These are three mysteries. I want to start with the scientific and go to the theological. So if I, if, if I bore you somewhere in here, sit tight. You'll find at least some of this very interesting. But we live with mystery. You ever just not know something, right? That doesn't mean that it's not profound. So in uh, 1998, there was a televised debate between an evangelical philosopher and theologian by the name of William Lane Craig. And he debated a very outspoken atheist and prominent scientist who has written many of our textbooks on physical chemistry. His name is Peter Atkins. And so these two titans went at it. And William Lane Craig used five arguments for the existence of God. And if you were to go, you're welcome to go to YouTube and you can look up Peter Atkins versus William Lane Craig. You can watch this debate yourself. But what you'll see is that Peter Atkins floundered on some of these questions. In fact, I, I will say all of these questions, but here's a really cool one. And when I ask my students this, and I bring up the theory, and most of you will have learned this in, in high school, especially if you went to a public high school, the Big Bang Theory. Not the show, the actual theory. And when I say, how many of you like the Big Bang Theory? And all of my students will be like, well, no, 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 right? Because the Big Bang Theory is trying to explain the universe without God. And then I explained to them the Big Bang Theory. So pick. Okay. And this is where the astrophysical evidence is right now, currently. And it was the case in 1998. And William Lane Craig explains this to them. We know that the universe is still expanding, and, and everything about space uh, can be understood mathematically. And we know that the universe can be uh, taken all the way back to a single moment. It's called the initial singularity. And we know that in this moment in our history, space, time, and matter all came into existence. And in cosmogony, the study of the absolute beginning, this is where they're at. They say, we can go this far, but we don't know the cause. We know that the universe began. The Big Bang Theory says the universe can be, can be traced all the way back to a single moment where space, time, and matter all came into existence. But this has got scientists' minds exploding because they only know one thing, one thing that's not bound by space, that is not made of matter and is not within time. Science does. And that's numbers. But here's the problem. Numbers don't cause things. We only understand the, the evidence and understand the universe with the use of numbers. But no one says, I was going to come, but number seven stopped me. Right? No one says, I think 18 made this. 
Numbers are just how we understand things, but they don't cause things. And so science, the astrophysical evidence tells us, look, space, time, and matter all came into existence and something caused it. Whatever caused it can't be in space, is not bound by time, and is not made of matter. That's the profound mystery of the beginning of the universe. And I think it's really cool, really cool that in the very fabric of the universe, God can push us to this precipice, this chasm of mystery, where the only way to cross to God is faith. We get to the end and we say, we don't understand how, this is mysterious, but for the Christian now we can say, God is not bound by space, time, or matter. Can we prove it? No, but it's just a leap of faith away. So if you were to watch this debate, you would see this uh, textbook writer not, totally not understand this and, and have no answers for it. And to, even today, there are not answers for that question. The other uh, that I want to talk about comes uh, in 1994, so even a little bit farther back, almost 30 years ago, uh, there was in Tuscan, Arizona, a conference in the spring on the brain. And this relatively unknown philosopher, he was only 27 years old, his name was David Chalmers, he gets up there after two other speakers, he was the third speaker, and these are people talking about brain science. So you, you can imagine people were like, wow, this is a really boring conference. And then this 27-year-old philosopher with long hair and wearing a jean jacket and jeans just gets up and he's like, hey guys, I want to talk about consciousness. <laughs> and everybody perks up because in the field of brain science, people can understand how certain things work, but the one thing, and they call it, and they still call it today, it's the hard problem of consciousness. We don't know why we are aware of us. Why aren't we just like robots that sort of respond to certain stimuli? In fact, everything we learn about the brain, we see, wow, it, it, it's mechanical, it's this, but where is our awareness coming from? We don't even know where all of our memories are stored or how we even can store them all. And so in the field, of, of brain science, nobody is even remotely close to understanding consciousness. And so David Chalmers gets up there and says, we don't know anything. Science can't tell us anything about consciousness. And here's what's really interesting. Uh, so the number one uh, scholar on the resurrection, his name is Gary Habermas. And he's written several books, one of which is called Life After Death. And if you don't know this, there are three forms of death. There's heart death, cardiac arrest. Your heart stops, uh, and after a few minutes, if, if you don't get that heart going, you'll experience a second type of death. That's brain death. You've got no brain waves. You've got no heart going. And then if you die for too long, after three or four minutes, uh, unless, of course, you're on ice, you'll experience the final one, which is biological death, where your cells start to break down and you 
will eventually go into rigor mortis and your blood coagulates and you bloat and, well, we don't need to talk about that. And when we look at our Bible, we have two people that came back from biological death. You have the person of Lazarus, who was dead for four days in a tomb. And if you don't know this, a tomb was the perfect conditions for decomposition. In fact, that's what they wanted. You were exposed to open air outside uh, in this tomb, and you would decompose. And a year later, they'd go in and they'd collect your bones and they'd put them in a box called an ossuary because they wanted to save your bones for the final resurrection. So the tomb was always temporary. But here, Jesus waits four days, and they don't want him to go in there because of the, and it says this in, in the Gospel of John, the smell. That's why they would use uh, spices. In fact, there was 100 pounds of it used for Jesus by Nicodemus. But nonetheless, he comes out with his burial clothes because Jesus calls him out. Now, of course, Jesus as well, when a handful of female followers were going to uh, anoint his body because they didn't want it to smell, and Jesus would have been covered with this uh, shroud, as it says in John, but the body isn't there. He was resurrected as well. And we have this interesting piece of uh, evidence. You might have heard it. It's called, uh, we, we, not only do we have an ossuary with the bones of James, it says James, the brother of Jesus, which was unheard of. Uh, you would always put the, the son of and your father. So we have this ossuary of James bones, but we have this other artifact. It's called the Shroud of Turin. It's in a vault in the Catholic Church. But studies were done on this shroud. Uh, in 1999, they did a pollen study, and they found that the pollens within the fabric were consistent with Jerusalem. And this shroud, when you uh, look at uh, it with um, a negative light, like a black light, uh, you can see it with the naked eye, but you can see it better when you, uh, when you put it under certain light conditions. It's got a full body image of a man whose brow is bleeding, who has a wound on his side, and has holes in his wrist and feet. And this shroud is said to be the burial cloth of Jesus, the Shroud of Turin. And what's really interesting, here's the mystery. We don't know how that image was made. Modern science cannot replicate it. There is an image on this cloth of a person fitting the description of Jesus, uh, and studies have shown uh, pollen consistent with, with that area. And there's an image on the front and back, almost as if this uh, image fell through a body. And if you look at the New Testament, Jesus was able even to go through a door that was locked. And here on this shroud, we have this miraculous image that no one's been able to replicate. There's been theories about it being formed with light Strong enough light, solar light, can form an image like this. Here's the problem, though. Any light bright enough to make that image would also have to be hot enough to burn it up. And so it's, the, it's this mystery. And now people have debate, debated about its authenticity because if it's real, uh-oh, that's a big deal. 
And so we have just enough, just enough here to not be certain. There's this mystery. But it tells us something because Jesus, when he was in the tomb, went somewhere. He went somewhere. And so to go back to Gary Habermas, he studies in his books, Life After Death, this thing called NDEs, near-death experiences. Now, there are millions of near-death experiences where people die and they feel like they experience something, but that's not, I'm not going to say it's not valuable to them, it might be, but it's not valuable to the scientists because it can't be tested. Yet, in these near-death experiences, there are thousands of examples of what we call vertical ones from the Latin truth, ones that can be tested. I'll give you one such example so I don't go too long. Susan Reynolds uh, went through an operation called Operation Standstill, and it's when uh, somebody has uh, an aneurysm in their brain, and so in order to work on that, you got to shut the system off. So you stop the heart, and then you stop the brain. Just like if you were to work on a computer, you don't do it while it's on. And so they stop the heart, they stop the brain so that they can remove this. Now, they don't have a lot of time because the brain can't go very long without oxygen. So it's, they try to be quick. They shut the system down. They bring in the tools. They remove the issue. And then they jumpstart the system and hope everything turns back on. If you're a doctor, that was probably a very crude way of saying that. But that's what happens. And so they measure it. They have things they put in your ears to know that you have no brain waves and know the system's off. And then they wheel in these tools. They do this operation on Susan Reynolds. And uh, when the doctor's in there, he's got his nurse assistant, and he makes a crude joke about Susan. Not, it wasn't appropriate. But, I mean, who cares? She's dead, right? She's got no brain waves, no heart. It's not like she's going to hear it. Well, when she's there recovering, she begins to ask the doctor, she says, what was that tool that you were using? I've never seen that before. You know, it sounded kind of like this. And the doctor was saying, well, wait a minute. Why would you even know that? You wouldn't have. She's like, oh, well, when you were working, I, I, I saw myself hovering above and you were using these tools. And he says, there's no way you could know that. And then she says, by the way, that joke, you shouldn't have made it. And he's like mortified. And he, he, he gets a piece of paper and he says, draw, draw what you saw. She draws the tools, explains what they sounded like, explains these things. And, uh-oh, we have thousands of examples of people dying, yet nonetheless experiencing things that we can verify later. And science can't explain it. It's a mystery. And I told you I'd go to the theological. The other one is this. It's very simple. The Trinity. If you're not familiar with the Trinity, it's how we believe in the person of God, who is three who's and one what. And we don't know how it works. All we know is that the Bible is, is very clear in, on monotheism. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. So there's God the Father. All throughout the Old and the New Testament, we hear about God the Father. But then we also know from our New Testament that Jesus 
is God. Before Abraham was, I am. He claims for himself the divine name, Yahweh, I am. He all, it also says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have in Acts, when Ananias and Sapphira were lying about the money they were giving to the church, it says they lied to the Holy Spirit, and Peter says, see, you lied not to us, but to God. And so we know that the, the Holy Spirit is God, we know that Jesus is God, and we know that the Father is God. They're not each other, there's one God. We don't know how it works. It is a mystery. Yet it is nonetheless profound, because if God could fit in your head, He's not big enough. And so the mysteries in the universe are there to teach us to trust God. That God has bigger things at work. That the famous story is of a man named Augustine who is walking on the beach because he has trying to understand God and the Trinity and all this, and he sees this boy who he thinks is the dumbest boy he's ever seen. Because this boy dug a hole in the sand and then ran with a bucket and picked up water and poured it into the sand and watched it disappear and ran back and picked it up and put it into the sand. And Augustine said, poor kid. Poor kid is, might as well be eating rocks right? This kid is dumb. And then he goes to the kid, says, dumb, dumb. What are you doing? And the kid says, oh, <laughs> I'm trying to get all of that, he posts, points to the ocean, into that hole. And Gus says, I was right. This kid is gone, right? He's got no hope. And he says, very slowly, that's impossible. And the boy says, then why are you trying to get the Trinity into that small head of yours? And then the boy disappears, right? And he's like, oh, dang, <laughs> oh, that's convicting, right? That mystery is, is built into the fabric of the universe because we can get to the, sort of the edge of it. And we have to say, God, I will trust you. We can get close but we can never get all the way. That's just what faith is. So when we look at these trumpets, there's a mystery here. We don't actually know exactly what it's referring to, but we do know some things. And, and here's what we know. God is in control of all creation. And what He has made, He can unmake. And I want you to see this. So there are four trumpets here. And any reader can be certain that what is happening here is God demonstrating that what he's made, he can unmake. So in Genesis chapter 1, we all know the six days of creation. Seven, if you count the rest. But in the six days of creation... It all starts with God creating the heavens and the earth, and then it uses this beautiful phrase, tohu wabohu, which means it was formless and empty. 
And if it was formless and empty, God needed to give it form because it was formless. And he needed to fill it because it was empty. Now, if you go back and you read Genesis uh, and and you read the, the first account, you see on day one, well, he makes the heavens. He makes the light. He forms the heavens. On day two, he forms the waters. And on day three, he forms the land. So he gave the earth form and the heavens form. And then what did he do? It needed form. Then he did the filling. He now filled the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. He then filled the waters. He then, on the last day, filled the land. So it parallels very perfectly. It was formless and it was empty. So he formed it and he filled it. What does this have to do with the trumpets? Look at this. The first trumpet, God formed, right? On, on the, the third day, God formed the land. And here, the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled on the earth. And the third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees and the green grass burned up. So on that third day, God formed the earth and the plants and vegetation. And now here is God on making a third of it. So he's going in reverse order. What happens the next day? Well, remember, um, on the uh, second day, God made the waters. And so on the second and on the third, we see God destroying a third of the, of the seawater and a third of the fresh water. And there on the fourth The first thing God did was he made the heavens, and now he's robbing from the heavens a third of the very light that he made on that first day. Look, in reverse order, God is undoing what he formed. And that ought to scare people because God didn't just form, he filled. So if God can unmake what he formed, he can unmake what he filled. And and look at, listen to this. It says this, after the trumpets, those, those four trumpets, you have, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. If God can unmake what he formed, woe to the inhabitants, because he can unmake you too. Now, anybody who reads that sees that God is in control. He made everything from the beginning, forming it and filling it. He can unmake what he formed, and woe to you, inhabitants, because he can make what he filled. And guess what? There are three trumpets left. This, anyone can read and understand that the God of the universe is in control of everything. The the God who exists before space, time, and matter, who brought everything into existence out of his word alone, this God couldn't make it with his word alone. 
I'm taking too long. The last point I want to make is that if God can unmake what He has formed, He can unmake what He has filled. He can unmake us too. And I mean this in a, in a good way. And I want to bring you to a book I've been studying recently, and it's the book of Hosea. Now, the book of Hosea is a hard book to read because there's this prophet of God named Hosea, and he gets called by God to go and preach. And you would think, man, that's a really cool thing, to be called to be a prophet, to be the mouthpiece of God. But then God tells Hosea something really weird. You're going to be my prophet. He's probably like, yay. And then, he, and then God says, okay, so in order to be my prophet, I need you to go and marry a whore. He's like, wait, <laughs> hard stop, right? What? He's like, yeah, go marry a woman, a prostitute, who will be unfaithful to you over and over again. Oh, and the children that she bears, they won't be yours. Yeah, go do that. Her name, by the way, which I think makes it worse, is Gomer. So not only does he have to marry a prostitute, he has to marry a woman named Gomer. And so he goes and he does this, and it's, and it's terrible and tragic, and, and God says, that's what you've done to me. That's what you've done to me. You are unfaithful consistently. And then God unmakes the covenant that he made with Moses, where at the burning bush he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It says in Hosea, I am not your God and you are not my people. But then it gives us this great promise. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He's talking about us. That he's going to allure us and bring us once again into the wilderness. But you need to hear this. If, if you're Jewish and you hear this, it's really bittersweet. Because the wilderness is where they spent time before they got in the promised land and they hated it. They hated every minute of being in the wilderness. And now God is saying, I will bring you again into the wilderness. But the way he says, I will allure you, it's that you'll love it. And you have to understand that when God is unmaking us, this is the God who can, can bring form to anything with a spoken word. Imagine what he can do in you. But sometimes God has to take us to places we will not like. But in some, to some degree, we will love it. Not because the place is great, but we love the person who's going with us. And I don't know if you've ever gone somewhere with maybe uh, a, your spouse, but I have lots of memories of doing things with my wife that frankly, I didn't love what we were doing or where we were going. I just really loved the person I was going with. And God is going to call us in our lives to places that are difficult, that might be even tragically hard. He may be unmaking things in us. 
but we ought to love it. Not because the place is great, but because the person is. And the person of God is so powerful, so strong, he can unmake the very form of the universe. He can undo its very filling. And honestly, that ought to give us great comfort. Because if we are in the hands of Jesus, the judgment is not on us. It is on those who have not given their lives to Jesus. And I remember just one time when uh, I was walking outside. This was in the summer two years ago. And I saw two students on the roof of the school that I work at. Not allowed, by the way. Uh, it's an old school. It's got this roof like that, so it's not very safe. And they yelled at me. They said, Mr. Canary. I'm like, what are you doing up there? They said, come eat pizza with us. I said, that's dangerous. I'll be right up. <laughs> I went out onto this roof, and I remember sitting there, and uh, I don't remember the view. It, I do remember it was cold, and it's wildly uncomfortable to straddle and sit on a roof, by the way, and try to eat pizza while cold wind is blowing against you. I remember being really uncomfortable. But I loved that memory. Because those are two students I don't have anymore, and I loved the moment I spent with them. And you need to know that in your life, God will do things. God will do things that might wipe out a third of the things that you hold dear. He might unmake things in you. And know that the God of the universe has our best interests in mind. He will not unmake that which he does not intend to rebuild in you. Something greater, something better, and something forever. And I, I, I want you to know that yes, these trumpets are about judgment. They are. But the person who is judging can unmake everything. But he will only unmake that which he intends to rebuild. And I know Chad will talk about it in this series, that we have a new heaven and a new earth to look forward to. And what's awesome is that as Christians, we're a part of that vision. And I just pray that you, that you can take comfort in, in a God who can unmake all things, even the things in you. Please pray with me. Lord, I just thank you that we can be thankful that you are a God who can make and unmake that you are a God who is so big that we cannot see around your, yourself. We cannot see around to your purposes, but we must come to the edge of mystery and then trust in you alone. And I just thank you, God, that you are so big you don't fit into my head, that you are so big that I don't see your purposes, that you are so big that you can make on Unmake all things, God, because that 
is precisely the God that is worthy of all our worship. And I pray that we would give you just that, God, all our worship. And we love you in your precious name. Amen.